The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. James chapter 2, we'll continue in our series, walking verse by verse through the book of James together. Uh, we, in this series, do something. And uh, I, I fight this, I'm going to fight this all the way through this series. Um, with, a, with a series title, like do something, it almost sounds as if we are advocating religion. We're, we're telling you that, uh, that we are to be a religious people that works to be accepted before God. And that's not what we're saying at all. Uh, we, we saw a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, that religion, that word can be redeemed. There is, there is religion that is acceptable, pleasing to God, and there is religion that is not. We're not advocating that you do a certain number of good deeds or anything on a prescribed list to get your, yourself into good graces with God, we're saying that, that that work has been completely and totally done by Christ. But because of that, those of us who know Him, who have hearts that have been changed, made new, set free, that we have a responsibility, that we have a, a privilege to live differently, to do some things that we're called to do in Scripture that now we're set free to do. So that's, that's the whole reason behind the title of this series. This morning we're going to look at verses 8 through 13 in James chapter 2, Lord willing. And uh, I have to say, I sat through, uh, I'm, I'm in Scotty Stone's Sunday school class, and uh, I sat there the whole time, Scotty, and I was pretty quiet this morning because... You stole every bit of my thunder. Uh, this is like the, the, the period between Sunday school and, and now. This was the intermission, and this is sort of a continuation of your lesson. Okay? So you, you're gonna be, it's going to be surprising how dead on this really is. But uh, uh, they're walking through the gospel project together, and, and I just sat there thinking, this is it. This is, this, that's exactly, I, I pulled my notes out and I showed my wife and I showed all the different verses you were reading and, and how I had those in my notes as well. So if you want to go get a drink of water or something like that, you feel free to, to head out, but uh, hopefully not. Um, what, are, what are the biggest sins that you can imagine? If you had to put sins into a category list, what are, what are the worst ones you could think of? Uh, would it murder be up there, top of your list probably? Rape, um, child abuse, um, adultery, terrorism, things like that would be top of your list, right? We're going to hear James today include one that you may not have thought would be on the top of the list, but James includes right along the sides of murder and adultery, he includes favoritism. Showing favorites, being partial to some people over others. And I, we may not put that in the same category. In fact, we are um, pretty typical of our culture to, to separate sin into certain categories. And we call some sin big sins and we call some little sins. But the reality is our God is holy. And therefore, there are no big sins and little sins. We're not okay if we only do the little sins, but we never do the big ones. And we're going to see that today. So I want to walk through this together. Follow along with me as we read James chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, has also said, do not murder. If you do, commit a, do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I want to show you today in this passage that there are two types of citizens that living in the kingdom of God. Uh, there are, first off, these law-abiding citizens in the kingdom of God, and then we're going to see that there are convicted criminals living in the kingdom of God. So first, let's look at these, the, the law-abiding citizens in verse 8. Uh, James makes mention here of this royal law. Well, first question I have here when I look at this, it, when he says, if, if you really fulfill the royal law, you're doing well, on what basis can James say, this is right, this is well? If you do this, this is right. On what basis can he say that? What makes this law right? Well, these this two little words, the royal law, is, is a word that literally means the king's law. It's the law belonging to the king, which, if this is a royal law, a law given to us by the king, belonging to the king, it implies that there is one over us that there is an authority over us, that there is a sovereign who is over us. We live in a kingdom, and if we live in a kingdom, it means that we live under a king. Don't miss this. When James here talks about living or fulfilling the royal law, don't miss the fact that the royal law is given by a king. We live in a day and age where people want to make up their own rules and determine for themselves what is right and wrong, and everyone loves to do this except when they're the one who is violated. People will argue that there should not be any absolute law. There shouldn't be any absolute truth. There shouldn't be anything that you shouldn't be able to dictate to me what's right and what's wrong, but let someone break into their house and steal their property. And the first thing they will do is pick up their phone and call 911. And they'll tell the police, someone broke in and stole my stuff. This is just not right. Wait a minute, I thought you just said that there should be no absolute right and wrong. See, everyone loves the freedom of no rules except when they're the one who's offended. We don't have that right living in this kingdom because it's not our kingdom. We're not on the throne. There is a king who occupies the throne, and he is God. Notice here, James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture... The, according to the Scripture there, dictates to us that, again, it's not our right to determine what's right and wrong. The king is not only on the throne, but the king has spoken, and he's written this down in a book. He's given us his word, and this is what he expects of us. So the first question, what makes this law right? What makes this law right is the fact that it comes from the king. The king gets to dictate that. The second question I have when I read this is, well, what is the royal law? What is he talking about when he says the royal law? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, and then he tells us what that is, to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do you do that? Because you and I know that there are some times when you don't always get to choose your neighbors, do you? And sometimes there's some neighbors that move in that are somewhat hard to love. They have that little yappy dog, Right? I am that neighbor now. My dog likes to go out and yap at the neighbor's dogs. 
So you don't always get to choose your neighbor. So how do you do this? How do you do this well? How do you, how do you love your neighbor? Well, God's always been clear about this. And if you want to do this, keep your finger in James, but you can also turn, if you will, to Leviticus chapter 19. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read them and talk a little bit, read and talk a little bit. But in Leviticus 19, there's a passage, I think, that's pretty clear about what God expects the love of neighbor to look like. Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 9, I have these printed out, so I'm not going to turn there, but Leviticus 19, verse 9 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vine, your your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God." So here in Leviticus 19 is this God laying out for us what it looks like to love your neighbor. And part of what it looks like to love your neighbor, God says to his people, is to care for. To care for people. Because you and I know, we're going to see this as I go into another text in a minute, but our neighbor is not just the person who lives next door to us. Our neighbor in this kingdom is anybody we come into contact with that we're we have the opportunity to serve or to help in some way. So God here says in his word, all the way back in Leviticus, part of what it means to love your neighbor is to care for them. Don't don't glean all your harvest. Leave some in the field so that these who have nothing can then come in and I'll provide for them as you follow me. Leviticus 19 goes on, verses 11 through 12, and God says, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your your God, I am the Lord. Here's this kingly language again. I'm the Lord. This is my law. I'm giving this to you. So another part of what it looks like to love your neighbor is not only to care for them, but it's also to deal honestly with them to not steal from them, to not lie to them, to not talk in, in bad ways about them. This is not always easy to do, but this is what it looks like to love our neighbor. You think about this as I read through these. Think about this in the context of your workplace with that person who nobody wants to go to lunch with. Or at your school, that person whose clothing is it's not quite in style and it never quite seems to be all that clean. Nobody really wants to be around them. You think about this as, as you're um, this young person living in this society and, and, and there's a person who lives across your street and she is an elderly lady and she is widowed and she is by herself and she is lonely. Think about real people that you will come into contact with. God goes on, Leviticus 19, verses 13 through 14, and he says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Loving your neighbor means not taking advantage of them. It's not seeing some, some what society would call a weakness and for you to say, I can exploit that. Leviticus 19, God goes on, verses 15 through 16. He says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. What he's talking about here is when, when you go into the court system and you turn to 
the government and the judicial system. You're not, going to, you're not going to exploit your neighbor there. Loving your neighbor means not playing favorites. It's not looking at someone. We looked at this last week who comes in who has nice clothes and he's, his, his fingers are just dripping with gold with all the rings. And you treat him differently than you treat the man who comes in dressed in shabby clothing. It's loving your neighbor. He goes on, Leviticus 19, verses 17 through 18. He says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Loving your neighbor means telling them the truth and reasoning with them to turn from their sin. We, we oftentimes think that loving our neighbor means that, that we don't want to offend them, so we won't say anything about the lifestyle that they are, are living. But we have a responsibility to one another, particularly to one another as believers, that when we as believers are headed off in a path away from godly living, that we are to confront one another. And here he says, confront one another, reason with one another. This is what it means, all these things in Leviticus 19. We could go other places in the Bible. Certainly, this is not all of what it means to love your neighbor. But I think Leviticus 19 gives us a a great picture of the spirit of this law to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let me just side note here for just a second. our, Our culture loves to say that before you can love anybody else, you've got to learn to love yourself, which is really completely, totally hogwash. I mean, do we really need practice at loving ourselves? Who do you think of when you get up in the morning? Yourself. You go to the mirror first thing. You go to the, you go to the kitchen first thing. You go to the bathroom first thing, right? You're, you're thinking of yourself, and this continues all through the day. And some of you will hear this sermon, and you will hear me talking about uh, love your neighbor as yourself, and you'll be more concentrated on thinking, well, I sure am glad he's preaching this today because so-and-so's here, and they've not loved me real well. And you, you will have this thought that this is for someone else when God is speaking directly to you. This is not all there is to loving your neighbor as yourself, but certainly this gives us sort of the spirit of it. Someone might say, well, but that's Leviticus. That's the Old Testament. Didn't didn't this expectation of loving your neighbor as yourself, didn't that go away when Jesus came? To the contrary, Jesus actually heightened this and deepened this expectation to, to love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, he said. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus here, he he says some things that are pretty important. Why? What does he mean when he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets? What in the world is Jesus talking about? Love God and love your neighbor? Why, did he, why does he seem to elevate this love of neighbor on the same plane with love of God? Shouldn't we just love God and shouldn't that really trump loving our neighbor? But Jesus here seems to put this on the same plane, that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Why doesn't Jesus just list out the Ten Commandments? 
Why doesn't he just begin to say, you shall have no other gods before me? And down the list. I think Romans 13, I think Paul gives us a great clue as to why Jesus elevates love your neighbor as yourself on par with love God with all your heart. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. This is a passage that we looked at in Sunday school this morning, in my class anyway. Paul there says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul carries right along with his teaching of Jesus that the the greatest commandments in, in Scripture is to love God and love your neighbor. And on these, the rest of the Bible depend on these. Paul carries right along. Here's, let me point this out to you. You may not have really caught it or thought it through as we read that Romans 13 passage, but let me ask you some questions. Is it possible to murder someone and love them at the same time? Last I checked, no. Is it possible to commit adultery and to love your spouse at the same time? Is it possible to steal and to simultaneously love the person you're stealing from? Is it possible to covet and to love the one you are jealous of at the same time? The answer is no in all of those. Paul's point and Jesus' point, God's point is that, look, if uh, all of these other commands, if we will root our behavior in love of God and love of neighbor, it will take care of so many of these other things. You, you, can't, you can't murder. You can't commit adultery. You can't steal. You can't covet in love. You can, you can do all those things in love of Self. But you can't do those things in love of the other person. Jesus was not only clear about this, uh, about the expectation to, to love your neighbor, but he also modeled it, didn't he? Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 44, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is that not exactly what Jesus did? From the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus modeled for us what it was to love your neighbor. Jesus told another parable in Luke chapter 10. Let me read this for you, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
but a Samaritan, the one person in the story that they couldn't imagine loving. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took, took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three men, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, Jesus said? The man answered, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. I've already sort of comedically said to you, we don't always get to choose our neighbors, which is true. And I I want you to think beyond those people that live next door to you. you. You may immediately go there, but think about those people, as I've already said, those people that are at work with you, those people that are on the highway with you, those people that are shopping with you, certainly those people in your neighborhood, those people in your school, do you have more of a tendency to discriminate and, and to look at someone because of the color of their skin or their socioeconomic st- status in the world or, or, or something else and sort of disqualify them from loving them? Or are you blind? Are you blind when it comes to those things and say, you know, Jesus loved even his enemies. He prayed for them from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And therefore, you go to those people and you love. You get your hands dirty. You, you, you take a risk. You take a risk on being rejected and, and having some of your social standing fall because you're going to reach out to the unlovable and love them. Do you go to those people that are, that are, that are loved? Everybody loves. And do you love them the same? See, we don't always get to choose our neighbor's but we can choose to love them. I think James' point in calling this the royal law is really twofold. I think the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I think we've been given this law by the king who has a right to rule. I think that's part of the reason he calls this the royal law. He wants us to see that in this kingdom, in God's kingdom, we don't have the right to make up our own rules. We live under a king. But I think the second purpose for James calling this the royal law is that in God's kingdom, this is the way true citizens behave. This is just to be expected. This is what Jesus did. In God's kingdom, under his rule, we are to be the most loving people on the planet. It should not be people out talking about Christians being the most hateful, judgmental people they've ever run into. Now, some of that will come naturally because some have been told that the behavior that they're they're participating in is really sinful and that they should turn from that and trust Christ as Savior. And therefore, they have rebelled against that in their flesh. And so they have this negative skew about Christians. But it really should come down to the fact that that at the end of the day, when they're not trying to defend themselves or, or talking with someone else, they should know in their heart that person knows Christ, and they're the most loving person I've ever come across. They love me. They love me regardless of what I do. They, they're not afraid to tell me the truth, but they love me. 
Now notice, notice the way this verse is worded. I think it's important that we notice that. James here says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, you're doing well. So the question I have for you is, how about you? How are you doing on this? Are you really loving your neighbor as yourself? Are you living as a law-abiding citizen in this kingdom, modeling the behavior of your king, loving those who are not always lovable? Or does this verse bring conviction? When here James says, if you are really doing this, do you know really not? Boy, I've got a long way to go here. Well, I think that's part of the point. I think, I think James, the wording here is intentional, and he wants us to look at our lives. This is what the law is meant to do. This is one of the things we talked about in the class this morning. Is the law is meant to be this mirror that when we come to the law and we see all of these things listed out, we're supposed to come face to face with the fact that we can't keep these. As much as we're told, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't covet, don't lie. All that we know in our heart, these are things that are true of us. You say, well, wait a minute, but I've never committed adultery and I've never murdered. Jesus raised a standard on that and said, if you've ever lusted at a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. Jesus said, if you've ever been angry at your brother, then you've committed murder. So I want you to see, I want you to feel the weight of this. If you really fulfill the royal law, then you're doing well. And so I would say to you today, if you've got this thing down and you're loving your neighbor well, all those people that you come into contact with, if you're doing that great, then right on. Check out. Because you got it all figured out. But the ch- I, I, I can pretty well guarantee that there's not one of us in here that has this thing down. So James goes on and he, and he points, to us, points out to us that not only are there law-abiding citizens in the kingdom of God, but there are also convicted criminals. In verses 9 through 11, this is what he begins to talk about when he says, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now this word partiality here, think about it. It's the very antithesis or the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself. It's the very opposite. And James says, if you're doing the very opposite of this, then you're convicted. You're guilty. You're sinning. Started out this way. We may think that something like partiality is not that big of a deal. Um, And it's certainly kind of, maybe, maybe it's a sin, but it's certainly not one of the big sins. It sort of belongs on the list of little sins. But James makes no distinction. James doesn't distinguish and say here, okay, but, you know, if you're showing partiality, then, you know, it's kind of bad, and, and you should probably work on cleaning that up. Is that what James says? No, he uses strong language. You are convicted by the law, and you are sinning, and you have become transgressors. In other words, God doesn't grade on a curve. I used to love those teachers that would grade on a curve. I was never the best student um, in school. I used to love those teachers, and those that were the best students hated those teachers. God doesn't grade on a curve. You're either obedient or you're not. God's not looking for partial holiness. Now, mom's in the room. Ever told your kids, go clean your room? 
I'll come around later, and I'm going to inspect your room. They go away. They're in their room for a while. They come out. They say, I'm ready. My room's clean. Okay, I'll come see about that. You walk in the room, and the bedspread covers the sheets, but there's so many wrinkles just under the surface that it kind of looks like one of those relief maps of a mountain range, you know. And there may not be any clothing on the floor, but you look at the drawers, and there's like shirt sleeves and socks hanging out of them, right? Is that what you're looking for as a mom? Clean your room, which means just throw it all in there somewhere and I'll figure it out. Is that what you're looking for? No, what you're looking for is when you come to that room for the bed to be smooth, for it to be pulled tight, no wrinkles, tucked under the pillows, or the pillows, all 49 of them, stacked in their proper place, right? For clothes to be put away, dirty clothes either in the hamper or taken to the laundry, for clean clothes to be in their drawers or on hangers in the closet, all nice and neat, tucked away. God's not looking for partial obedience either. In verse 10, James says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James is giving us the picture here of hitting just one little corner of the window. And you didn't hit all the window, but you just hit one little corner of the window, but the whole thing shattered. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called, the, called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here doesn't let up. He doesn't say, okay, now that I've come, now that you know, I've done this, just take a break. Just pick and choose. You know, I'm going to grade on the curve. I've already done it all, so you just do whatever you want to do, and, I, and I'll be good with that. Do your best. Jesus never says that. We are to rest in Christ's finished work, but we still must understand that we will be held accountable. There is a responsibility here. Galatians 3 verse 10 says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Are you counting on the law today? Are you counting on being good enough? You better, you better think about that. You better consider that because God says it's not a matter of your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds. God says, I require perfection. The rich young ruler, when he came to, to Jesus, he claimed to be perfect in all these things. Jesus said, well, love Lord your God, do all this. And he said, I've done all those from my, from my youth. And Jesus said, one thing you still lack. Go and sell all you have and give it away to the poor and then come follow me. And the Bible specifically says that the rich young ruler goes away sad. He doesn't then turn to Jesus and say, but Jesus, sure, I've got this whole issue with coveting going on, Jesus, but I'm pretty good on the other nine. 
Instead, he goes away because of one. Don't miss the fact that Jesus requires perfection. Too often, we want to skirt by on mostly obedient and partial holiness. But verse 11 says, If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And again, I think here we're meant to take a look at our lives. Are you content with partial holiness? With mostly obedient? What what does that say if you are? What does that say about your place in the kingdom? Are you living as this law-abiding citizen or really as a convicted criminal? The reality is, and here's my final point today, the reality is your life will tell the story. And this is the point of this whole passage. Your life will tell the story. In verse 12, um, James says, So act and so speak as those who are to be judged. Now keep in mind, he's writing to church members. He's writing to believers. Certainly, there are probably church members out there that are not true believers, that are lost. But he is assuming that those whom he is writing to are believers, true believers. And he says to them, so act and so speak as those who are to be judged. Here's the point. Law-abiding citizens are very aware that there is coming a day when they will have to give an account for their words and their actions. One of the greatest motivators for your living obedient as a law-abiding citizen of the king in the kingdom of God, one of the greatest motivators is for you to, to have this day of judgment in mind. You say, but wait a minute, I thought we're under the gospel, we're under grace, we're not supposed to think about the, the day of judgment. Scripture certainly point, paints the picture that we are. It's, it's not a day of judgment where we will fear being cast out in condemnation because certainly those who are His, He does not cast out. But listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will, discl- will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. So there's a picture in Scripture that, that those who are truly believers, who are those who, the children of God, Christians, we will also stand for God on this judgment day. And our lives are built on the foundation of Christ, but what we build on top of that foundation with our lives in obedience to God, some of it will be burned up and some of it will last. We're going to have to face this day. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 1 Peter 1, 17, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. All of these are written to believers. It's not as if he's simply writing to unbelievers saying, there's a day of judgment coming, turn from your sins and trust Christ. He's also writing to believers who have turned from their sins and have trusted Christ. 
See, again, this goes back to the gospel is not simply just a jumping off place and we get past the gospel. The gospel is necessary every day of our lives. That repeatedly, over and over again, while we are secure in Christ, we're going to grow in this love for God. And what that's going to require is us repenting of sins in our lives and turning from them and turning and trusting Christ and following Him. One of the great motivators for living as law-abiding citizens of the kingdom of God ought to be this coming judgment. Likewise, one of the great motivators for turning from your rebellion and believing on Christ ought to be this coming judgment. Now, don't hear me say that, that there is not a day of judgment for those who do not believe in Christ. If you're here today and you are not a believer, you're not a Christian, you're not trusting Christ as your only hope of salvation, then you too will have this day coming. Yours will not be a day where it will simply be your works that will be burned up, but you will be saved. Yours, if you do not trust Christ, if you don't turn from your sin and trust Him, yours will be a day where you will indeed be cast out. The Bible speaks of this as being thrown into a place of fire that never goes out, of this never-ending darkness where the worm never stops eating. Here James says, I think that's his point when he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. I think James knows that while he's writing to, he's assuming that these out there are believers, he's writing to them, wanting them to live their lives in such a way, trusting in Christ, but knowing there's a day of judgment coming, and so being obedient. I think he also knows that there will, there will be some out there that will hear this, and they've never truly believed. And he says to them, look, in that day, in that day, if your life is marked by not showing mercy, not loving your neighbor, it will tell the truth about your life, that you were never one of his. That's why Jesus said there's going to be a day when, when people are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Job 22, 6 through 11 describes that day for the unbeliever. And he says, for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. If you're living your life counting on some profession of faith somewhere back in there that's never made a difference in the way that you live, the reality is that profession was simply a profession, but it never really had any lasting value. If your life doesn't prove the fact that you trust Him, then you really don't. Proverbs twenty-one thirteen says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So what, is, what does your life say about you? What's, what's the story your life is telling? Do you claim to know Christ and claim to love Him only to despise certain neighbors and leave them in their needs? And the Bible says, do you repent? 
and trust Christ. The flip side of this is, the second part of this, James uses the phrase, under the law of liberty. The reality is that those who are truly citizens of this king that are law-abiding citizens, they're not law-abiding citizens because they've somehow figured it out or they have more moral resolve, but instead they've been set free. They have been liberated by the king. We who are believers are not special. We're not perfect. We're just the recipients of grace. We have been freed from sin's penalty and power over us. What that means is that that when you come to Christ and trust Him as your only hope of being saved, that you are totally forgiven in that moment. There is no condemnation against you. You Your sins are eradicated. They are wiped away. Not only that, but He says here that sin's power, we've been freed from it as well. That we no longer are like Ephesians 2, these men men and women walking like, like dead people following the course of this world, but instead we've been made alive made alive and set free to, to obey God from the heart. The song we sang earlier, as we ran our hellbound race, that, that's the picture of the, of the person before Christ intervenes. But when Christ comes and makes you alive and make, gives you the grace of the gospel and you receive and turn and are converted to Christ, there is a turn from that hellbound race. You've been given new hearts that are willing and desirous of following after Him. As we live our lives by loving our neighbors, we display that reality. I think that's why in in verse 13, the last part of it, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. He's not talking there about, in that final day of judgment, he's not talking about the mercy of God triumphing over judgment. Instead, what what he's referring to in the context is the mercy that you and I have shown in our lives. On that day of judgment, it will be the mercy that we have shown will be the proof that we truly are His. See, the mercy that we have shown is not earning it, but on that day, the mercy that we have shown, the loving of our neighbor will prove that we really were His. Matthew chapter 5 or 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We come to this issue, and, and, and um, I couldn't help but think about this. I almost interrupted Scotty, and, and, and Scotty always at the end says, Anybody have anything else to share? I almost shared this, but I was just thinking about this. When you come to the law, this royal law, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you go beyond that and you think about the Ten Commandments, Scotty spent a lot of time talking about how a lot of people view the Ten Commandments as restrictive. Look, law is not tyranny when the king has made you free. Law is not tyranny when the king has made you free. All of a sudden you go from, I've got to do these things, to I'm free. I get to do these things. I get to obey. I get to serve the king. What I would leave you with today is to tell you, church, live like you're free. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would take this passage and take this sermon, and God, that um, you would, Lord, correct any error. God, that you would just... 
keep there from being any confusion. Lord, I pray that the truth of what's here, God, would, would be clear in the minds of those who, who are hearers today. Lord, that for those who are in this room today, God, that, that have never turned and trusted you, Lord, that today you might open their ears. Help them to hear and see the beauty of this. God, I pray that they may be set free today. Lord, for the believers in the room, God, I pray that you would call them to live like they're free, to live in that freedom, to not continue to to live according to the course of this world, but God, to live like they're free. They truly are free. We live under the law of liberty. We will be judged under the law of liberty. We have no fear of condemnation, but we do have a responsibility and we have a privilege. And God, I pray that we would enjoy that and walk in that and do the things that you've called us to do. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to, to respond, to respond to what you've heard. Uh, maybe you're here today and, and you know you're not a believer. You've heard me talk about judgment, this day of judgment that's coming, and today you understand that Christ is your only hope. And to, today, you don't know how, you don't know exactly what to do next, but you know that you want to you be saved. You want to turn from your sin and trust Christ. I'd love to talk with you about that. I'll be seated right down here on the front. Uh, I'd love for you to come and, as Ethan leads us as we sing. Just come down here and grab me, and we'll talk through that. Uh, maybe even after the service, if you don't come during that time and you want to just pull me aside, I'd love to, to hang around and talk as long as, long as, uh, long as it's, it's pertinent. Maybe you're here today and, and you've been of this mindset. You're a believer, but you've been of this mindset that what you do in the body doesn't matter. And you just had this, this mindset of l- just let go and let God. And as Scotty said this morning, that you've just sort of been in the back seat taking a nap and thinking God's just driving this thing and you'll, you'll get there. Maybe today there's some things that you need to repent of. Maybe there's some things that you need to to begin to walk in, to begin to be obedient. I don't know what you need to do, but God does, and you do, because God's speaking to you. So be obedient to him. I'll be here. There'll be people in the prayer room just over out through that door around the corner that would love to pray with you if you need to pray with somebody. They're not going to offer counseling or anything like that. They're just going to be there to pray with you. Uh, Just loving brothers and sisters who would love to just take some time and hear your burden and, and just take it to the Lord with you. Whatever it is that God is leading you to do, do it today. Be obedient in your worship of Him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.